Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. How's everyone doing? Good. Will y'all join me in prayer and then we'll get to today's message. Lord, we thank you for little babies. We thank you for children. We thank you for uh, kids that we can buy school supplies for. We thank you for good food that we get to eat. We thank you that your gospel is going out to all the world. Your gospel is simple. We deserve nothing and we get everything. We deserve no life, no joy, and yet that's what you offer us. Endless abundant joy. And so Lord, as we uh, enter into the fall, as we sort of prepare for it, would you inhabit today's message? Would you speak to your people so that we would see your face more clearly? It's in your name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome again. Uh, As we've said, we are getting ready to move into the fall. And what that means, if you've been with us for a bit, is that we are gearing up for another round of tables. Anyone excited about tables? Yes. You're like, what is a table? Tables are basically our small groups. It's how we do small groups at Hope Brooklyn. They're uh, smaller expressions of what we do here on Sunday throughout the week. And if I could sort of like distill down the essence of a table, it is this. It is committing to sharing a weekly meal, inviting others to it, and celebrating how God is at work in our stories. What is a table? It's sharing food, it's inviting people to it, and it's celebrating what God is doing. Now you may be thinking, okay, well how is that any different than like a book club or any other friend group? And that's what today's message is about. We're gonna take the month of August and talk about various aspects of the table, but today uh, my hope is really getting at the core essence of a table, which makes it different than any other group. And hopefully, I'm just gonna be completely honest, hopefully convincing you or persuading you to host one this fall. And you're like, whoa, 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 that's too much. Just give me, give me time, give me about 20 minutes, and then maybe, uh, maybe I will have changed your mind. So what I wanna read, the, the, the passage of scripture I wanna focus on comes from Acts chapter two. Uh, For anyone who's unfamiliar, Acts tells the story of the first church. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write accounts of this guy, Jesus, the life he lived, the death he died, his resurrection. They sort of like uh, make the case that there is something super singular and unique and radical in his life. But then Luke, he goes a step further. So he writes the account of Jesus, but then this guy named Luke, he writes an account of the first church. And in the first two chapters of Acts, which is that account, um, it's it's quite a whirlwind of stuff that happens. Just to give you sort of like a snapshot of what happens in chapter one and two. Chapter one, Jesus is resurrected. He sort of appears to his disciples and then he ascends. That's the word, like ascends into the heavens. Now, don't think, it might be problematic to think, oh, he goes up and we all stay down. That's not entirely what's going on but we'll have to save that for another day. In fact, just a little plug, I'm gonna lead a Bible study this fall on the book of Acts, and the first one will be on the importance of the ascension, so you'll just have to wait for then. All right, Jesus ascends, 
He tells his followers, gather together and wait for me. Wait for the gift that I'm gonna send you. Pray. Then in chapter two, they're, they're doing that. They're in an upper room together. They're waiting. They're like, I don't know what we should do. I guess we'll just sit here and pray and, and, and worship Jesus. And while they're doing it, there's like a sound like an earthquake that shakes them. A wind comes gusting in the room and tongues of fire light on their head. And they start speaking languages that they previously did not speak. There just so happened to be Jews in Jerusalem at the time who understand these languages. So then Peter, who's one of the disciples, he stands up and he preaches a sermon, one of the best sermons probably ever preached, and 3,000 people decide to put their faith and their trust in Jesus on that day, and they all get baptized. This is all in chapter one and two, tongues of fire, speaking unknown languages, Jesus ascending to the heavens, um, a sermon that like converts 3,000 people, that's, it's, it's a whirlwind what's going on. And then Luke concludes chapter two, which is the birth of the church, with this little summation statement. And this is where we get our impetus for the table. This is what he writes. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little sort of bow on top. Uh, very Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, just, oh, it's very sweet. They're just meeting together and eating and there's just gladness and sincerity. It's a bad translation, guys. It does not even come close to capturing the upwelling joy that is spilling out of these first followers. The joy that is literally overwhelming them so much that it's, that it's flooding them and spilling onto the toes of those around them. It does not capture the single-minded neurotic urgency, and neurotic is the right word, neurotic urgency to continue gathering together and celebrating together. So I decided, if it's not too sacrilegious, to do my own translation I just want you to know it is not theological. Uh, I am not speaking in the name of God. I'm just sort of, you know, doing my best to try to capture the sheer joy that is exploding at the end of these first two chapters. So here's Russell's translation of Acts chapter two, verse 46 through 47. Day after day, attaching themselves like a barnacle to the temple with one purpose, going from house to house, breaking bread, they were receiving their share of nourishment with a joy and sincerity that was literally flooding them and spilling over onto the toes of those around them, praising God and experiencing the grace of all the people. And day after day, the Lord was adding to those being saved. This is a people, what's going on in these first two chapters? This is a people utterly characterized by joy and sincerity. They are characterized by steadfastness. So you may have seen I translated attaching themselves like a barnacle. The word that sort of kicks off this is pros kartoreo. Kartoreo means to seize or to grasp and pros means to or toward. So they are, uh, it's translated devoting themselves, but literally what they're doing is they are attaching themselves to something. They are seizing it and not letting it go. 
They are attaching like a barnacle to the temple and to their homes. They're receiving nourishment. It's spilling over in praise to God. They're experiencing the grace of the wider neighborhood. And slowly, they're growing in their number as God adds to their party. Notice there are two primary locations for this joy, for the expression of the joy, where they're going back and forth. Temple and house. Temple and house. Day after day, they attach themselves to the temple. From house to house, they, they go and they, they teach, or they go and eat, rather. So they go back to the temple and the house. They gather to worship, to learn, to pray. Then they scatter to each other's homes, to feast, to celebrate, to practice gratitude. There's a constancy to it. Day after day, from house to house. And then at the end, day after day, the Lord's adding to those being saved. There's just, there's a movement to it. It's a constancy happening. And the question I want to ask is, where is this coming from? What are they seeing that other people aren't seeing? And the short answer is joy. They're encountering joy. What is joy? What does joy look like? Where do we find it? What is it? That's kind of what I want to try to get at, but it's really hard to pin down. So it's first thing I want to do is I want to read, I'm reading an, an anthology on joy right now, which is really good. And part of it, it's made up of poems and excerpts. Uh, one of them comes from this woman named Nan Shepherd, And uh, she was a Scottish, I guess, pastoralist. I'm not exactly sure. She just lived in the Scottish Highlands. She lived among the mountains and she wrote about them. <laughs> uh, pretty cool job, right? And uh, one of her, her works is called The Living Mountain. The Living Mountain. And this is how she describes Joy. How can I number the worlds to which the eye gives me entry? The world of light, of color, of shape, of shadow, of mathematical precision in the snowflake, the ice formation, the quartz crystal, the patterns of stamen and petal, of rhythm in the fluid curve and plunging line of the mountain faces. Why some blocks of stone hacked into violent and tortured shapes should so profoundly tranquilize the mind, I do not know. Perhaps the eye imposes its own rhythm on what is only a confusion. One has to look creatively to see this mass of rock as more than jag and pinnacle, as beauty. Else why did men for so many centuries think mountains repulsive? A certain kind of consciousness interacts with the mountain forms to create this sense of beauty. Yet the forms must be there for the eye to see. And forms of a certain distinction. Mere dollops won't do it. It is, as with all creation, matter impregnated with mind. But the resultant issue is a living spirit, a glow in the consciousness that perishes when the glow is dead. It is something snatched from non-being, that shadow which creeps in on us continuously and can be held off by continuous creative act, by attaching yourself like a barnacle. So simply to look on anything, such as a mountain, with the love that penetrates to its essence, 
is to widen the domain of being and the vastness of non-being. Man has no other reason for his existence. What are the disciples seeing that is characterizing their life? They're seeing the mind that has impregnated the matter. They're seeing the mind behind it all. The beauty, the beauty that Shepherd is describing is the mind that says this is not a jagged piece of rock, but a mountain. It's a momentary pulling back of the veil and lo and behold, it's not just, uh, just rock, it's actually something more. It's a mountain that inspires us with all, which is why joy is not happiness. Happiness is a fleeting feeling based on circumstances. Things go well in your life and you feel your feelings, you know, tick up. Things don't go well in your life and you feel your feelings go down. That's not what joy is. As the German poet Rilke writes, joy is a visitation. Joy is a visitation. Joy is when the veil is pulled back and you freak out because suddenly you're face to face with the monstrous reality of God. Suddenly you're face to face with the monstrous reality of the mountain. You hadn't seen it before. Before it was just jagged rock and stone and, and shrubs, but suddenly the veil was pulled back and you saw the mind that has impregnated the matter and you're stunned by beauty. How could it be so beautiful? Was it there the whole time? And it alights a glow in your consciousness and then it fades, right? It never lasts. You see it and then it's gone. Joy is everywhere. The mind that impregnates matter is everywhere, but we don't see it often because we haven't been trained to see it. As Christian Wyman writes, God is not absent. He is everywhere in the world you are too dispirited to love. As Shepherd says, to look on anything with the love that penetrates to its essence is to widen the domain of being and the vastness of non-being. Which is why joy, and I was already planning on speaking on this um, for the last couple weeks, and it feels odd that in this last week we've had four shootings in our country that have killed multiple people. Communities, families are reeling right now how can we talk about joy in this? Because joy is not antithetical to grief. Grief has room within joy because joy is not based on our circumstances. Joy is an ability to say, though the world seems dark and absent, yet I will still praise the Lord because I see his face. As, as Wyman also writes in another place, to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Yes, there is deep injustice, deep wrongs in this world, deep things that we can and should grieve. But if that's all we focus on, if that's all we see, then all we see is the devil. There are also deeper currents in play as well. There are deeper forces than simply injustice and death. And that's what the first disciples saw. What did they see? What was the mind that impregnated the matter that totally shook them 
and calls them to respond with such neurotic joy from temple to home and temple to home. They saw the resurrection. That's what happened. They saw the resurrection and then they encountered the Spirit of God. They saw Jesus, the one who they loved, die, but then come out of the tomb. And they didn't know what to do with this. They didn't understand it. Uh, it's been pointed out, and, and, and modern neuroscience is even making more the case for this. Um, our emotions, we don't have emotions like fear or happiness, and then our bodies sort of react to that. It's the other way around. Our bodies react, and then we sort of name that as an emotion, is what happens. So they encountered the resurrection, and it shook them which is why I'm grateful for Mark's account. If you ever read the resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I, I love Matthew, Luke, and John, but they're kind of like nice. They're flowery. They talk about joy, and the joy is there, but not at first. Mark doesn't talk about the joy at first. The, what Mark says is when the women go to the tomb and they see the man in white who get, gave them the report, Jesus isn't here, it says that they're terrified. They are absolutely terrified and they're experiencing ecstasis, which is where we get our word ecstasy. It literally means to have your mind thrown out of joint, to have your mind sort of like, you're, you're literally out of your mind is what it is. That is the correct response to hearing the report that the person you loved has been raised from the dead. You're not gonna be like, oh, what joy. You're gonna be like, what the living fill in the blank. That's what you're going to say because you've never experienced this. Death is final. And now you're telling me it's not final? That is a catastrophe. My world is shattered. My world is over. Nothing will ever be the same. And for any of us who have experienced tragedy, you know exactly what I'm describing. For when you experience death or a car crash or, or something that is tragic, it's this feeling of the world will never be the same. It's done. Whoever I was before then is over. A new world has begun. It is a catastrophe. But here's the thing about the resurrection. It is, as J.R. Tolkien calls it, a you-catastrophe. For anyone who knows your prefix is you means good. The resurrection is the good catastrophe. Because Yes, this means our world is over. Someone can come back from the dead. This, what, what else can happen? In the, what other physical laws can be defied in this world? Our world is over. I'm terrified. But this is Jesus. Jesus lived a life that was so good. He loved us so deeply. He says he represents the mind behind it all. He says that what we're headed toward is a giant feast that God loves us and is for us, that we can't lose his love. We're forgiven. We're welcome to his table. And if death doesn't hold him, then maybe this means really, really good things to the world. Yes, I know the world seems terrible, and that's what you have to realize. These first disciples, nothing had changed in their worlds. Rome was still on top. They were still oppressed by Rome in Judea. Moreover, to start putting their faith in this guy, Jesus, was to um, put themselves in a marginalized place by their own brothers and sisters in the community. So like 
their lives are about to get a lot worse. Their circumstances are not very happy circumstances. And yet there is a joy that is exploding from them because the resurrection is a eucatastrophe. It is a visitation of God's grace. They are swimming in the presence of God. And as they wait on Jesus, as the embodiment of God, they praise him. As they wait for his final return, they praise him, they adore him. And God's reality, God's visitation, God's joy is welling up inside of them. They're soaked in the presence of joy and of life, and it's spilling over. Karl Barth describes the resurrection. He says, the resurrection is the laugh, freed forever and ever. Laughter is the closest thing to grace. And I think that's so it. The resurrection is the laugh of God that is freed forever. It can't be stopped because death is the most powerful thing and even death could not hold God's love. It's a good catastrophe. This is, this is a catastrophe because our world has ended, but it's good. We can join into the laughter in the midst of the sorrows and the grief. And we can incorporate the grief, but we can join into the laughter. You can grieve and still laugh. And you know that's true if you've ever been to a funeral of someone who loved God and loved people really well. You hurt so deeply because they're gone. But you do want to laugh, don't you? Because you love them so much. And that love lives on. That is the eucatastrophe. That is the resurrection. The story of Jesus is monstrous, paradigm shattering, grace. And the resurrection is the deep belly laugh that never ends. So then putting all this together, where do belly laughs and grace and joy naturally happen? At the table. Isn't that where the most joy is found when you're sitting having a delicious meal where the candles are lit and the wine is decanted with your closest friends and family? Isn't that where the laughter envelops the space where we're called up into the resurrection in that moment? And then when you look back at the biblical story, you realize it's everywhere. You realize this has always been the case. When God creates Adam, God has always been saying this. When he creates Adam and Eve, you know the, the first two commands he gives them? Have sex and eat food. I'm dead. Yes, right? Come on. Two of my favorite things. I'm not going to tell you in what order. Have sex and eat food. He tells them to procreate and he says, here are the plants for you to eat. That is what God has always been after. Friendship, relationship, deep belly laughs. Then when he redeems Israel out of captivity, we're just following the course of the story. When they're in captivity in Egypt and he redeems them, and they start traveling to the promised land. What does he do? He rains down manna, bread from heaven. He provides water out of a rock. He gives them a singular meal. The most important meal, or the most important action of what it means to be Israel is to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover is literally a feast where they remember what God has done for them. Later on, when he gives Israel the law, he will institute three festivals three celebrations and parties that Israel is required to celebrate. I want a God that requires me to celebrate. Anyone else? I want a God that says, you have to show up for the feast. I don't care if the homework's not done. 
go outside and party. That's what he's doing. The prophets are constantly imagining the world to come as a giant wedding feast. That's the best image we have of what heaven's going to be like. I love weddings. I love them. There's such love and selflessness present. There's such good food and remembering and celebration. That's what the prophets say heaven is going to be like. And then Jesus shows up onto the scene. And Jesus, don't get me started on Jesus. Jesus, is, his, his reputation, he's called a glutton and a drunkard because he is constantly eating with people and everyone, and not the way we do it. We, we, you, you know what I'm talking about. When you go to like dinner parties sometimes and you immediately feel the snobbish social hierarchy in the room, don't you? You know who the cool kids are and who the uncool kids are. And I want to talk to that people and not that person. That's how we do food, which is disgusting. And we all do it that way, but it's so gross. Jesus, he just eats with everyone. He talks with everyone. He blows up the whole social game, which is why they kill him, by the way. They kill him because he creates chaos, because his joy, his grace for everyone is just, it's too uncontrollable. This feast is going to get out of hand. The, the laugh is going to keep spiraling. Someone contain the laugh. Someone contain it. It's too much. We can't be this joyful. His first miracle, Jesus' first miracle, is he turns water to wine. And just so you know, because I know it's different standards of measurement, it's not a little bit of wine. It's liters and liters of wine on like day three of the wedding. So everyone's already pretty sloshed. And Jesus is like, here's some more wine. Keep the celebration going, guys. It's a wedding. He multiplies bread and fish for the masses. He helps the disciples catch tons of fish. And then he asks them to cook some up for a meal. And just like the Passover for Israel, the last thing he leaves his followers before he dies is he says, come to the table and as we've talked about before, this is not what he meant by the table. We do it for our service because it's the best way for our context. But he means like go to like prepare the food, sit down for dinner, go to the table and remember that my love for you cannot be taken away. Grace is not based on, on what you've done or what you'll do. It's based on me. Remember me. Eat and remember my love. Join into the laughter of God because that's what's at the core of the universe. That's the beauty when the veil is pulled back and you see the mountain instead of just the lights and the, the rock. When you see the beauty of it, you know what I'm talking about? When, you, when it's pulled back and you see it, it's the laughter of God. That's what the deepest part of this world and that's what the church gets to step into and invite others into. It's the laughter that has nothing to do with our merit. It has nothing to do with the cleanness of our hands. It has nothing to do with our past or our future. It has everything to do with Jesus. His laugh has invited us in. Grace is everywhere. Joy, laughter, the table, it's everywhere. But no one wants it. No one wants it. There's a parable Jesus tells of the wedding feast. And he goes, uh, people didn't want to come. The people that were invited, they didn't want to come. And then basically God gets mad. He's like, just go invite everyone. I have to fill my house, my party. We have to party. And so they go out and they invite people. But people didn't want to come. Why? Because you can't bring anything to Jesus' feast. You can't bring anything. 
I've learned, my wife has taught me, never show up to a dinner party empty-handed, right? Anyone else know that rule? You can't do it. You got to bring like a bottle of wine or, or a bag of chips or something. It's good manners, okay? But it's also a, a form of reciprocity, isn't it? It's like we're grateful for this. Here, receive this as like a, a thank you. You can't thank Jesus for this feast. You can't bring anything. Joy is when God sets the table, the table that none of us deserve, invites us to it. But he says, you can come as you are, absolutely as you are, but everything in your hands, you gotta put down. Whatever agendas you have about, you hope God loves these people and not these people, you gotta leave those behind. Whatever ideologies you have of who Jesus is or what he would be about, Jesus is like, they can't come, just you, just you. Whatever past pain and anger toward people that you want to make sure that this can come with you to the table, Jesus is like, nope, that's not allowed either. But you can come as you are, but you can't bring that. The shame can't bring shame. It's just joy, just grace. You can't bring your friends or your spouses either. They have to come on their own, which is sad. It hurts, but you can't bring them. But you're invited. The table is set, you're invited, but you cannot earn this feast. You did not earn your invite. It's pure grace. There's a humiliation in that, isn't there? There's a humiliation of not providing for yourself, of showing up empty-handed. I've had that happen before. It's really awkward to show up for a meal where people are cooking for, for me and Anna and wouldn't allow me to bring anything. I couldn't bring wine. I couldn't bring dessert. I just had to show up. There's a humiliation present. I am completely eating in every stretch of the way on another person's dime, on another person's energy and work. I've done nothing to make this table happen. They are welcoming me out of joy. There's humiliation there. That's the feast of Jesus. We show up as we are. And no one wants this. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm kind of riffing a little bit. We'll see where this goes. But uh, I was thinking about this the other day, about the gospel. Guys, the gospel is so good. Like it's, it's the best thing I've ever heard. I am such a broken person. I hurt people. I neglect people. Sometimes unwillingly, like I didn't mean to, but I still did it. Sometimes willingly, maliciously. I am not good. I have brokenness within me. And yet the gospel is that God has said, you are like the apple of my eye. You are so welcome to this feast right as you are. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what my son has done. Because Jesus came out of the tomb. Who doesn't want that? It's the best news, the best possible news for the most amount of people. The issue why we don't want it is because if we come to it, like we just said, there's humiliation present. I'm no longer Lord of my life. I didn't provide my own table. I didn't cook for myself. I didn't bring something that created some reciprocity. It is sheer grace, undeserved, unearned grace. We'd rather have our dignity than the humiliation of accepting grace, of joining into the laugh. 
We just can't see it. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of Jean Vanier, and I've talked about him before. I'm still, I don't know, in these last bit of time, I'm so transfixed with what he was about. But Jean Vanier started communities where the able-bodied and the disabled lived together as friends, as family. And he tells the story one time of how many people just can't see the joy of the gospel. He tells the story of uh, he was sitting in his office and he was having a conversation with a guy who does not uh, live in a large community, is from um, an academic institution. And he goes, he was just a very glum fellow, just really glum. And, uh, and then a, a guy from La Arche named Jean-Claude, who has Down syndrome, he just came banging into the room, says Vanier. And Vanier said he was laughing. And he walked up to the guy and he shook his hand and he laughed. And he walked up to Jean and he gave him a big hug and he laughed. And then without saying a word, he just left the room still laughing. Just came in laughing, hugging and left laughing. And the guy that Vanier's talking to, he looks at him and he goes, how sad. <laughs> those, those people with Down syndrome. And Jean Vanier goes, what I wanted to say back to him is, the sad thing is that he couldn't see that Jean-Claude was happy. He was happy. He couldn't see the joy. We go around our lives, and Jesus is like, the table is set. It's for you. And we can't even see it. Because it's, it's behind things that, that we think that God wouldn't be there. Or we're not willing to let go of some idea we have of God or some past pain we have or some ambition we have. But God's laughing. The table's set. You're invited. Everyone's invited. Come join in the laugh. What characterizes these first followers of Jesus? A soaking in God's presence, which is a soaking in joy and in laughter and in grace, which is deeper than the brokenness. It incorporates the grief. In joy, we can grieve. We can grieve in joy and still not allow grief the final word. It's incorporated, but it's not the final word. We have tables, friends, because the world is headed toward a celebratory feast and we suck at the grace of feasting. We gotta get better at that. We have to get better at feasting because it's at the heart of God himself. It allows us to see that God is laughing. So they're not just a social book club because tables and all their various forms are built off the joy of Jesus's grace. They are built off the feast that none of us deserve and all of us are invited to. Jesus came back from the dead and the world is headed to a giant wedding feast. We have to start practicing it. So as, as, as our staff have been thinking through, how can we continue? Because we are a new church. We're trying things. We're getting better. But as we're thinking about how do we codify language around tables, this is where we're at. What is a table? It's practicing the art of hospitality and celebration. That's what we do in our small groups and our tables. We practice the art of hospitality and celebration. We're gonna talk uh, the next couple weeks about what, what we mean by hospitality, what we mean by celebration, how it flows. But the point of today that I wanna get across is the practice. It takes practice because we're not good at being hospitable or celebratory people. We're not good at it. It's a spiritual discipline, just like prayer 
or reading the Bible or, or any of those disciplines. It requires practice. Notice in the text, day after day, they attached themselves to the temple. Over and over, they were going to homes to share uh, food, to experience joy. It's a practice. You need to host a table, the weekly meal, because it's practice in looking like Jesus. It's practice in learning how to celebrate. Now, what I want to do briefly here is explain why it's a little different than traditional small groups. And maybe some of you uh, um, have no sort of exposure to church, so you don't know what a traditional small group is. That's great. Um, others you do, I want to explain why it's a little different. So in traditional small groups for a church, we, we gather here to worship, and then throughout the week we break up, and people, um, they, they host groups of other people in this room to meet and build community. That's a traditional small group. It's leaders making room for others to join in. And yes, tables are that, but they're not primarily that. Tables are primarily about you as the host, as the leader, they're about your spiritual formation. Often in traditional small groups, uh, a leader says, okay, I'll lead a small group, but it's about me setting a space for other people's spiritual formation. That's not what we want tables to be. We want you to host a table because it's about your practice of hospitality and celebration. It's your spiritual formation. And if no one else shows up, you still get to light the candles, decant the wine, and celebrate God in your stories. That's still your rhythm. So think of it like this. We have some concentric circles, right? There are three circles, a red, a green, and a blue. And the inner circle is the inner group, okay? Because we don't want you to do this alone. So maybe you're here and you're like, okay, I'll host a table. Find one other person, two other people, another couple. Maybe there's like four or five people that, that you know. Find a partner and you guys say, we are gonna commit this fall for this semester to host a table. And every Thursday, we're gonna meet and share a meal. We're gonna light the candles, decant the wine, turn on our Spotify playlist, dealer's choice. Um, and we are going to celebrate together. We're going to talk about what's going on in our lives, and we can teach you all that. That's your inner group. So that group, you are committed together. You are practicing hospitality and celebration. There's your table. Now, the second circle, the, the, the green circle, in traditional small groups, that's for other people in the community, but not for us. For us, what we want to, to focus on is our friends, our colleagues, our networks, who aren't a part of a church, who don't know of God's great love, they are invited into this space to join in the celebration, to join in the hospitality. So that's the second group. And maybe they come and go, but it doesn't matter because your inner group is practicing hospitality and celebration. You guys are committed. So if no one else shows up, it's fine. You still have that. And then in the third tier, the outer, outer group, is for those of us who are part of the Hope Brooklyn community who maybe don't know anyone and are looking to join a table. Then they can join as well. 
But the point is, I think the difference, it might not look any different in its form, but it looks different in the heart of the, the host, the heart of the leader. And the reason why is because whereas before you were leading this to try to create uh, spiritual formation for others, in this new version, what we want you to, to do is to lead this because it's about your spiritual formation. It's about your practice of hospitality and celebration. And friends, uh, just, just so you know, if you want more spiritual component, we're gonna have that. Like I said, I'm gonna be leading a Bible study this fall. So there will be room for that. Um, there's gonna be prayer at the table. So we'll talk more about what's involved in them. Um, but there will be the aspects for spiritual growth as well. But just so you know, it is just as much spiritual growth to practice hospitality and celebration. They're just as important to being like Jesus as learning to read the Bible and learning to pray. Just as important. And our friends need them, guys. I mean, just you can just look it up online and see the stats, but the stats are staggering. The average American eats one in every five meals in their car. Probably doesn't affect New York as much. One in four Americans eats at least one fast food meal every day. The majority of American families eat a single meal together less than five days a week. Loneliness has been declared an epidemic in the CDC, and stats are showing that loneliness can shorten a person's life by 15 years. It's equivalent in impact to being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our world is lonelier than ever. We're eating alone, and the table counteracts all of that. The table joins us in the laugh. Your friends need this. So in conclusion, I want to invite the, uh, the band back up. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about what uh, a table looks like, what hospitality and celebration looks like, how it flows. But today is about the practice component. Today is asking you to take a step and say, yes, I'll host one. And if you don't know people, We'll introduce you to people so you can host. If you're like, hey, I have space, but I don't have, um, uh, I, I, like, I'm not sure if I can be the, the primary cook for it. We'll figure that out. But today is about inviting you to take a step to engage in that practice this fall, this semester. So what I want to do, I want to close with reading a passage from Jean Vanier's book, Community and Growth. Check out this book. If you ever wanna know what the community of Jesus looks like, what a, a, what a church that is soaked in the love and grace of Jesus looks like, check out his book on community. He ends it by talking about celebration. And this is a description I would love to be of our tables. And notice all the elements involved in it. Notice that grief is involved in it. But this is what he writes. Nourishment comes in those moments when the whole community becomes aware of the current of life which flows through it. These are times of grace and gift when the community lives the joy of being together in celebration feasting, and prayer. I remember an evening in one of our communities which had just started. 
the meal I shared with them was rather sad. Each person spoke only to their neighbor, and there was no sense of unity around the table. After the meal, we all met in the living room. Someone picked up a guitar, and we began to sing. And then one after another, everyone began to clap their hands and beat out the rhythm with a glass and spoon or any improvised instrument they could find. You could feel the current of life. Faces began to light up. It was a moment of grace. We were really together. Our hearts, our hands, our voices beating in unison. But it didn't last. Some of the people with disabilities could not bear to feel too relaxed and happy. Their family's rejection had left them with too much anger. Sometimes we have to wait for a long time for everyone to be able to join fully in the celebration. Sometimes we have to wait for a long time for everyone to be able to join fully in a celebration. We host tables because the celebration has started. The laugh has begun and we're learning how to laugh again. We're learning what that deep belly laughter that incorporates the pain, we're learning what that's like again. We need to practice it, our friends need to practice it. Sometimes it'll take a long time, but that's what it's about. That's what being a follower of Jesus is all about, which is why we need you to host tables. We're having another training session on August 18th from one to three after service. If you're interested in coming and learning more about what it looks like, perhaps hosting one again, like I said, maybe you don't have the space or maybe you don't have, um, uh, uh, you can't host it or maybe you don't know people, we'll connect you. But if you're interested, would you text your name and email to that number, 347-560-1746. Or after service, there's a sign up at the uh, What's Next table. I'll be there and Bryant will be there to answer any questions. Come and learn, come and host, come and help us continue the celebration until all Brooklyn is able to join in. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you praise. We ask that you continue to reveal to us your celebration. Would grace continue to bloom in us? We deserve nothing. And you've given us the best food, the best wine. It's all set and we are invited as we are. Would that, that visitation of joy rip through the veil and awaken us to the truth of the gospel? And when it awakens in us, would it spill over unto the feet and the toes and in the lives of those around us. Would they join our tables this fall? Lord, for anyone in this room who's, who maybe feels a prompting, but feels nervous, would they, or afraid, would they know that fear is allowed? You can do it afraid. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to, to enter into it nonetheless. So would you raise up for us, God, 
those who can continue the celebration as we learn, as we practice hospitality and celebration. It's in your name. Amen. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Weiss at lizweiss.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.